Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show, a united Europe promising arms and aid. The West stands as one against Russia as the war in Ukraine enters its second month. World leaders meet for emergency talks in a series of summits in Brussels where Joe Biden warns the West will respond to any chemical or biological attack by Russia. It would, re- it would trigger a response in kind, whether or not you're asking whether NATO would cross we'd make that decision at the time. One month on, protests against the war and in support of Ukraine continue across the world, including here at the Russian Embassy in Dublin. I'm just, I'm just here, I can only scream and shout. I'm angry and pissed off and I don't know what to do with myself anymore. The conflict continues as Russia faces more losses and the UN children's agency UNICEF says four million children have been driven from their homes, their young lives shattered. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. of destruction and heartache, millions of lives torn apart and continuing uncertainty about the outcome of a major land war on mainland Europe in our lifetime. World leaders gathered in Brussels today for a trio of emergency summits, NATO, G7 and EU leaders gathering to stand with Ukraine. They promised to increase military aid and send more NATO troops to neighbouring countries. US President Joe Biden said the West would respond to any chemical or biological attack by Russia. And to clarify on chemical weapons, could, if chemical weapons were used in Ukraine, would that trigger a military spo- response from NATO? It would, re- it would trigger a response in kind, whether or not you're asking whether NATO would cross, we'd make that decision at the time. Well, let's go live to Brussels now and join our EU correspondent, Ross Cullen, for the very latest on a busy day of crisis summits in Brussels. Ross, a triple summit taking place, NATO, G7 nations and, of course, European leaders gathered there, Uh, Joe Biden flying in. Tell us about the significance of all of this. Well, Claire, it has been a mammoth day of summits here in Brussels, starting off with NATO and a meeting of all 30 leaders of the member states of NATO, and then moving on to the G7 in the afternoon, and then the summit of the European Union leaders taking place in the European Council building. You can see it behind me here in the heart of the European quarter of Brussels, all of them trying to project a position of unity, of a coordinated strategy ever since the 
the war began four weeks ago. Uh, we have seen this unified front in trying to show Ukraine that they are fully behind Kiev and the Ukrainian army, the Ukrainian people, but also trying to demonstrate uh, that they are doubling down and cracking down on Moscow and Russia's war of aggression. Uh, specifically, what have NATO announced? They'll be looking to prevent the spread of this into NATO countries. Um, what, what, what have they announced in terms of military build-up along the borders? Yeah, that was the first summit of the day, and we did have uh, the agreement from NATO uh, signing off on four more combat-ready battle groups to be sent to the eastern flank, uh, trying to beef up security on that eastern flank with additional uh, troop deployments uh, to Bulgaria, Hungary, Romania and Slovakia. Uh, we also heard from NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg saying that NATO would be sending uh, gas masks, protective equipment, medical supplies specifically designed uh, to deal with the aftermath of a chemical or biological attack. Uh, that is something that the United States has said that Russia could well be planning to launch on Ukraine. But it wasn't all agreement. And the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, appeared in a video speech uh, to NATO leaders calling for just 1% of their tanks, 1% of their jets. But Jens Stoltenberg did say that we will do everything we can as NATO to back up Ukraine, to stand with Ukraine, apart from a policy such as a no-fly zone, Claire, which would lead us into direct conflict and start possibly an all-out war between NATO and Russia. Also on the agenda, of course, sanctions and what the EU is going to do there. Um, and, of course, other measures to combat the pain at the other side of that that we're seeing as a result of this war. What's going on right now in that building behind me? The discussions are going to be uh, specifically focused on the energy crisis. We've already heard from the German Chancellor who said we want to avoid a recession in Europe that could be caused if we clamp down uh, on Russian imports of oil and gas into the European Union, if we clamp down in the wrong way, if it's not structured. Emmanuel Macron fears a possible food security crisis in Europe. So sanctions are going to be dominating uh, those discussions uh, tonight to see if there is a way to to, to find some alignment, but already we've heard this evening, Claire, from Poland and Hungary. Uh, they're sitting at the same table, two different sides. Poland wants to go further and faster, deeper sanctions where possible on Russia. Hungary urging restraint and saying we do need to think about European consumers and the energy mix of what we receive from Russia in terms of oil and gas. We did hear from some of the European Union leaders on their way in. The Estonian Prime Minister was saying that what is going on in Ukraine is a war crime and Russia's leaders should be held accountable as war criminals. We also uh, did hear from the Taoiseach, uh, Michal Martin was speaking, and he was saying that the sanctions are designed to punish Russia, not to punish EU member states. We must strike a balance. And, Claire, he had some uh, pretty fierce criticism for India. Now, Delhi has been abstaining on many of the United Nations uh, votes on Ukraine. It's one of the biggest buyers of Russian arms. Uh, Michal Martin saying that Delhi's position is unacceptable certain countries need to stop sitting on the fence. But when it comes to the overall package of restrictive measures, Michal Martin did say that Ireland is ready to consider the possibility of more sanctions. OK, Ross Cullen, Ross Cullen in Brussels for us tonight. Thank you for that. Well, I'm joined here in studio by Fine Gael TD Jennifer Carroll-McNeil, Independent Doll Deputy Cahill Berry, 
journalist and lecturer Harry Brown and Irish Daily Mail Group executive editor John Lee. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, if I could start with you first, Cahill, um, when we hear about what NATO um, is planning in terms of doubling its, its battle groups within NATO countries, um, what is their real fear about this potentially overspilling? It seemed to be what they were talking about yesterday, looking to prevent the spread into NATO countries. Is that a real threat? Absolutely. So basically what NATO decided in Brussels today is to send an additional four battle groups to NATO countries that are bordering Ukraine. That's a very prudent thing to do. So they're doing it for two reasons. First of all, they want it to be a deterrent for a spillover. So if, if Putin decides to maybe uh, attack one of the NATO countries, so it's a deterrent number one, but also from a reassurance point of view, that NATO are reassuring their, their border countries basically that we haven't been forgotten and you're going to be fully reinforced if necessary. Uh, does it run the risk, though, of playing into uh, the Russian idea that, you know, that this is all, you know, NATO expansion here and look what they're doing now. They're sending even more troops in. Uh, they're sending more EU, sending more in the way of military aid in here and that it's essentially opening the ante. Yeah. It's a small risk, but it's an acceptable one. Uh, and the second thing they're doing today is they've decided to send a lot of uh, nuclear, biological and chemical protective equipment uh, to Ukraine as well. So there's good, they're given three categories of equipment. The first one is detection equipment to detect an attack if it happens. Secondly, protective equipment to protect people and protect vehicles. And thirdly, decontamination equipment that if a vehicle becomes contaminated, they can hose it down and decontaminate. And that's a very prudent sensible, rational step as well. Um, what do you think of this, Harry, when we hear, I suppose, uh, you know, Europe united on one as one on this, Joe Biden flying in, these big summits taking place, a lot of talk about standing with Ukraine, and now all this increased military aid into the country. Uh, where, where do you think all of this is, is leading us? Well, that's exactly the question, isn't it? And it really is the one that makes us think of what we've read in the history books about countries building up and moving things in place. It feels like the chessboard being set up for a larger war. And I think that we have to understand that that is an absolute catastrophe if that happens. And the, to the extent that standing with Ukraine means, uh, you know, opposing Russia for its moral responsibility for the appalling crimes that it's committing there, absolutely stand with Ukraine. But to the extent that standing with Ukraine means cheerleading the world into a catastrophic confrontation between Russia and NATO, I don't think that we can stand there. That's where clearly where some Ukrainians would like us to stand, is what Zelensky is saying again. He's just looking 1 for, he's of looking your for a, a no-fly zone in the region sure. and, yeah. and, and, again, and more tanks and more equipment. And that's, and that's a likely recipe for world war. The fact is that, that uh, NATO has been part of bringing us to this point. So we can say morally Russia is absolutely 100% responsible for what it's doing in Ukraine. But we can say analytically and historically that for the last 30 years, Ukraine has been a divided, a poor, a corrupt country. I, I was in Ukraine on a couple of occasions some years ago, and it's, it's a pretty sad place. And it's been a sad place, not only under the threat and domination of Russia, but in a framework of, of Europe and of, of the development of the world where the United States and NATO have been the dominant military military and economic powers and only have been interested in using Ukraine as a kind of a pawn as part of an overall strategy to control yeah. Russia. I mean, the, NATO and the United States have, been, I mean, have bombed people in Europe in the 1990s. I, uh, NATO and the United States have, have invaded countries and brought down governments and killed 
hundreds of thousands. What about of what about this argument and this line that that we do hear? These are you know sovereign nations who are you know in in the case of the Baltic countries and the countries that are looking for this protection, they have a right to to ask uh, to join NATO. Uh, that's what Ukraine has done here, and you know that this is. This is the line that we're hearing from Russia, that it's about NATO expansion. Um, what do you think about Harry's viewpoint on this? Because there are divided views around all of this, aren't there, Cahill? If you look at the last 20 years, NATO has done everything to withdraw its troops. Look at the last US presidency. He actively wanted US troops out of Europe. So NATO are only reinforcing now as a result of Russian aggression. So my own personal view is NATO has been quite responsible here. Um, it's basically acting as a deterrent. It's signaling to Russia, please don't go near our countries. We don't want any trouble. But if you do, there's going to be consequences. Donald Trump was impeached because he was slowing the flow of weapons to Ukraine for, for momentary political reasons. I mean, there has been no question that it's been part of the Western project and part of the NATO project to treat Ukraine as a potential trouble spot for the Russians, you know, which is not, again, which is not to absolve Russia of responsibility mm. for taking the action that's taken, which is absolutely disgraceful. But there, there's no question that Ukraine has been seen as a, as a potential pawn in this game and and honestly it feels at the moment like nato is enjoying this just a little bit too much okay jennifer you're obviously in, in disagreement with harry on this one in terms of um how, how this is playing out and how europe should be responding to it well i don't agree that nato is enjoying it in, in any imaginable way nato is a defensive organization that exists essentially because of russia and because of russian aggression and when you travel to poland when you travel to estonia and latvia and lithuania when you travel to finland and sweden that you know you will hear from them the threat that they face that we don't and never really understood in this now, part of countries, Europe. Finland and Sweden aren't in NATO, No, I appreciate that, but they're in the European Union and they and when you go there and you talk to them, I was in Finland in, in Helsinki in November with a women's parliamentarian group, including Swedish parliamentarians, and at that stage the conversation was about Russia, the conversation was about their situation vis-a-vis -vis Russia, their defence spending, and questions around NATO generally. So, you know, so I appreciate that. But when you're positioned beside Russia, your perspective on military alignment, your perspective on how you position yourself vis-a-vis -vis Russia, including maintaining a neutrality to, to perceive your protection against Russia, is a very, very different perspective than we may have over here. And, you know, NATO has been a defensive organisation that has provided some security to those states. But Cahill is, is absolutely correct. I mean, they have been strategically withdrawing over time and trying to adopt a position that has not escalated this conflict, be, you know, in, in a way that I think would be very, very, very unhelpful. There isn't enough talk at the moment about de-escalation. And de-escalation is the only thing, I mean, in no way apologist, in no way for Russia, but de-escalation is the only thing that's going to save lives in Ukraine. It's the only thing that's going to bring stability to Europe. It's the only thing that's going to prevent the, the spread of this. Uh, and, and there needs to be more conversation about how that de-escalation is going to be reached. Yeah, I, I, that's the big question, isn't it? One month into this, John, like where, where is it all going? And um, de-escalation, that takes the form of negotiations and, uh, you know, this talk of an off-ramp off and where that off-ramp is, you know, in terms of Europe's response and, and Ireland within that. Um, how, how do you think that could be that could be brokered? Well, I mean, you know, Harry's referring to, um, I, I suppose, mobilisation of troops in the past has 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 escalated things unexpectedly and without plans. And you know, Vladimir Putin can use NATO troops building on his border perhaps to to further action 
we don't know. But the, I think going back on where, 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 what NATO have done in the last 20 years and what Russia have done in the last 20 years, I don't think anyone even in Russia really believed that Vladimir Putin was going to do what he did. So no one has been in a position to read his mind thus far. And right now, no one is in a position to read his mind. I think he's crossed the Rubicon of invading a sovereign, sovereign nation. He's destroyed his country's reputation. So the chances of him now pulling back due to talks of any sense are very, very slim. I think you're looking at a long war of attrition in, in, in Eastern Europe. Um, and I think world leaders might want to look today to what, of all people, um, the Canadian Prime Minister said, um, his name Justin Theroux, that we have to make it clear that that when someone does what Russia have, has done, that it, it's, it's, it should be seen to be such a strategic mistake and have such ruinous costs that no one will ever do it again. So what NATO, the EU leaders and everybody else has to do is make Russia suffer to the point where they don't feel they've suffered too much and Vladimir Putin's insanity is not escalated to a point where he does something even more insane. And he has already, let's not forget, threatened uh, obliquely the use of nuclear weapons during this conflict. Um, now, Joe Biden did allude to that, but with, without evidence about that they may, they may use chemical weapons in that, and that's why we're seeing this sort of NATO response around the protection going in, in the event of a threat around that. I mean, the question is, if we see militarily that this all seems to be maybe pointing to a bit of a stalemate right now, um, where, and this war of attrition, that means something that'll, that'll go on, that'll be bloody, um, and, and so many lives lost here, Cahill, um, and whether you know, the world starts sort of turning the other way with this. Yeah, I agree entirely. I think 30 days in, we're looking at stalemate now, and stalemate is uh, because neither side can achieve military dominance over the other. So you're looking at stalemate, and if Putin wants to break that stalemate, he has the ultimate backstop, which is weapons of mass destruction. Now, they've used them in Syria, they've used them in Salisbury, only a, a few hundred kilometres from here. So he doesn't have the same inhibitions that we would have in the West in relation to using weapons of mass destruction. And I think it's becoming more and more likely as every day passes. Harry, I take you, you, you disagree well, on, I, I on that Well, I just think that one. if you look at depleted uranium weapons in Iraq, if you, if you look at what happened to uh, cities like Fallujah, if you look at uh, NATO's uh, actions in bombing uh, civilian targets, even in Belgrade, you're not talking about a, you know, a, a massively restrained uh, history of campaigns by the, by the West either. I think that, that, that the, the, the construction of the West that is arising in the context of this war is exactly the sort of, sort of moral panic, if you like, the kind of war fever that strikes me as being so dangerous that we, we propose that not only is Putin bad, but we are terribly, terribly good, and therefore any war between us is a war between good and evil. So what do we do in this situation? Like, how, how, how is this stopped? How, I mean, talking about de-escalation, talking about negotiation, where do you think it goes from here? Well, I mean, it has to be uh, negotiation, and I say that with, you know, through gritted teeth, because I don't believe that Russia should be able to achieve uh, objectives through invading a neighboring country, of course not. But it has to, you know, there's a, a kind of an old saying in strategy, which Kyle will probably know better than I, you, know, make, you make a golden bridge for your enemy to retreat over. And, you know, there has to be some way in which, you know, already there's a... Ukraine is a very difficult place, and Zelensky is probably under pressure from all sorts of 
political tendencies within his own country uh, that would push him against negotiating with Russia. He came to power because he, people thought he would be a good broker with Russia. He's a Russian speaker. He yeah. was very pro. I, I just want to talk, talk about, uh, I suppose, what, the, what Europe is doing here and sanctions being, uh, being used essentially as a weapon against Russia in order to try and, you know, uh, certainly have, uh, let them have less money and resources to spend on, on the military fight. How do you think that's working? And, and what do you think is likely to come out of all these talks now at Europe tomorrow about a new sanctions package, but still yeah. the issue of Russian energy being a thorny one. It is a thorny one, and this would be, I think, is it the seventh set of sanctions that, that would have been agreed by the EU, you know? And obviously the pressure you know, we're only going to get so far with putting pressure on Vladimir Putin. The pressure is to try to create pressure internally within Europe, within Russia, to you know, from the from the people of Russia, because that is really as far as as far as I understand, the only real threat to Putin in any meaningful way is is coming from within Russia itself. And so the effort, and because because what's the alternative? I mean, you can go as far as you can with sanctions. There, we don't want, I believe, to go down a military alternative because, as we said, that just simply escalates things. But you know, this is, we have to take the warnings very seriously. We didn't necessarily foresee this, but the U.S and the UK intelligence services have been looking at this for many, many years. We have seen Russian efforts to destabilise Western democracies and indeed the United States and the United Kingdom for many, many years. The risks, you know, that is the goal, is to destabilise Western democracies and the Western way of being, as well as expand from the East further and further. So we have to take the, 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 new, the new threats very seriously indeed and try to respond, but not in a way unfortunately, unfortunately that, that escalates into a conflict that will affect us all, that will affect right across the is Northern the Hemisphere. Is the government in favour of sanctions that would include a ban on exporting Simon Coveney Simon, Simon Coveney has gas. said that a number of days ago, that, he, that that's, where he, that's where he would be. But it is, there is a complexity to it because, do, you know, like, while, while everybody is, is, is correctly standing where they are today and you see the protests, and you see everybody's strength of feeling, you see the response of the Irish people to supporting Ukrainian people, as this goes on, this is going to have enormous consequences for Europe, cost consequences, cost in terms of supporting refugees, cost in terms of our economy. And it's not, it's not now in the next two, three months, although we are already feeling it in energy, it is going to get much worse when it starts affecting food as well. Um, yeah, the food security is, is a whole other thing as well. John, in terms of how the government uh, broached this, an another thing that's going to come up is... Um, you know, they want whatever comes about to hurt Russia more than it hurts us in our pockets and European economies. Uh, they're also looking at softening the blow with moves around um, VAT, VAT. We are likely to see a move on that, aren't we, an announcement on that in the coming days? Well, we were told we might. Um, on few of that, the EU has never been known for its speed in, these, in, 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 in this area. I mean, Michal Martin was saying a couple of weeks ago in London to us that, that, that they hope for a move then. It doesn't really require an EU summit to do it. Uh, the problem with... And, and, and Jennifer has said, you know, that, that her party, for instance, may consider um, further restrictions on importing oil, I think, is, is what, what you... And I'm not saying Fine Gael represents all sectors of society, and this isn't a slight on, on Fine Gael necessarily, but some of the stuff that um, Eamon Ryan, for instance, has been saying in recent weeks and recent years about, and particularly recently, this is our opportunity to stop buying um, oil and gas from Russia, and that's how we affect Vladimir Putin. There are a large proportion of people in this country on the cusp of, um, of poverty. And if you rapidly increase the cost of oil and gas or coal or anything like that, um, it severely affects their 
and, and it's not a lifestyle choice for the, the people of South Dublin, say in Eamon Ryan's constituency, where they change their car to an electric car. These are people who may suffer, struggle to heat their homes in the winter. So that's not. You know, Isn't he making the point that in conjunction with you know helping people, they fast track the likes of renewables and, and they get all that on board? Well, well how, how how plausible is that in the next year? Say, I mean, you know, are, are we? We're not going to be in a situation. Europe is not going to be in a situation where it can shut off a supply of. Um, oil and gas. Germany, for instance, uh, gets 40% of its natural gas, 50% of its oil uh, from, from Russia. That's not going to happen overnight. So, it, yes, something has to be done in obtaining oil and gas from, from Russia. But it, you're fooling, we're, we're all fooling ourselves if we think that that can be done quickly. No, it can't be done quickly, but we had, for example, the SEAI at the Public Accounts Committee today and we were talking to them about the escalation of the offshore, in particular the floating offshore renewable strategy, how that can be done. And one of the big changes I think that has happened is public opinion, how the public, excuse me, view wind farms, view, uh, view the necessity for energy security. I see it in my own constituency where there's a proposal for a wind farm where there was concern, questions, naturally as you would, particularly when it's so visible. A lot of that has dissipated too. We must sort out our energy situation. Yes, we have a climate problem, but we now have an energy security problem and the public opinion is changing. And that's what the SAI are saying is one of the major contributors to how we are going to do this more quickly. Okay, my thanks to Cahill. Jennifer, Harry and John are staying with me. Coming up next, that shocking statistic of four million young lives shattered by the war. That's next. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. back. UN agency UNICEF has said that half of all children in Ukraine, that's an astonishing 4 million young lives, have been displaced from their homes by the Russian invasion. This evening I spoke to James Elder, UNICEF spokesperson in Lviv in western Ukraine, about the growing humanitarian crisis there. It's mind-boggling, Claire. It means that somehow in the space of just four weeks since this war started, one in two Ukrainian children, one out of every two children in this country has had to flee their homes. And they haven't just left, they fled under fire, under bombardment, they've watched parents separated, mostly they've had to farewell their father, that that father figure. Um, it's, it, it's nothing, we have not seen anything like this in terms of speed and scale since World War II. And, and we're still seeing it, it's ongoing because indiscriminate attacks are continuing on families and in populated areas. 
And James, the crisis clearly will have deep consequences for children. It's traumatising and the effects of it could be long lasting. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we see this from conflicts, whether it's Yemen or Syria or here. The longer a conflict goes on, the more risk it has of scarring children. And that doesn't... Scarring means, you know, that, that long-term development, mental health, potentially income capacity for a child, because they are living in bunkers and, and there's no school. The lesson today... Claire, for these kids is this is an air raid siren. It means jump out of your bed and flee to a bunker or a basement. And quite often on the way down there, you know, their mum will hold them on the ground because they're coming under fire. And then they get somewhere and maybe they're trying to get to Poland and, you know, then dad explains why he's leaving. So the whole thing is harrowing um, for those who have left and the uncertainty of where they are and what's happening next in a foreign country in a foreign language, or those children still here and all the stress that their parents endure day in day out there's there's just no good day here claire because even for those people still stuck you know overnight they hear of more bombardments and fathers losing more children and relatives relatives seeing more deaths so it's terribly scarring for kids and of course the only way really out of it is for the war to stop James, in terms of supports and what countries who are taking um, refugees, who are taking children, as you say, some of them actually unaccompanied, um, wh what's expected? What, is a, what are the priorities now for countries like Ireland, who are seeing thousands of refugees coming through, many of them families, um, and some, as we say, who have been separated? Well, I think, first and foremost, where families are coming across out of... Uh, here, out of Ukraine, it's very important that they're registered, that there's protection at the border, you know, and that requires police forces, it requires governments to coordinate uh, sleepless nights about the idea of trafficking. As the UN Secretary-General said, you know, in a conflict like this, trafficking is not, you know, uh, traffickers don't see it as a tragedy, they see it as an opportunity. So we need law enforcement, we need greater protective skills at borders, we need to make sure volunteers are vetted. 99.9% .9 of volunteers are open-hearted, wonderful people. There is a tiny fraction uh, who are not. And given the huge numbers of children, a tiny fraction of people with ill intent can be terribly dangerous for when it comes to things like trafficking. Well, James Elder, UNICEF spokesperson in Ukraine, joining us from Lviv tonight. Thank you for joining us, bringing us the latest from there, and do take care. Thanks so much, Claire. Well, Finnegal TD Jennifer Carol McNeil, lecturer Harry Brown and Irish Daily Mail journalist John Lee are still here with me. I'm also joined by journalist Jen Hogan. And um, Jen, certainly you look, at, you look at parenting, you look at the lives of children and adults, and certainly when we look at this situation, what James has been explaining about children internally displaced but also fleeing the country, um, it's harrowing and it, it's so frightening, isn't it? Oh, it's absolutely harrowing. I mean, it's just... Even if you personalise it yourself and you, and you think if this was your children, if this was somebody you loved. Or, I've been speaking to Ukrainian families recently about their experience. Ukrainian families have arrived in Ireland and 
the trauma, I mean, they've, they've managed to flee, but their, their, their journeys getting here were traumatic. They're, now that they're here, everything's so different. And while they're hugely grateful to the welcome that they've received from Irish people, it's still a huge adjustment to them. And I've spoken to some children as well who've come here. And there's, there's that attempt to try and still connect with that what's left of normality at home. One child is still trying to continue going to online school in Ukraine, but obviously that gets stopped the minute the air raid sirens go off and everybody has to, in Ukraine has to go to bunkers and so his classes are called off and he's trying to balance between um, his education, uh, continuing with his education there in the hope that he'll return soon versus looking at um, his education here and, and getting into an Irish school here. And they're worried about their dads and their brothers and their grandparents and loved ones and friends who have stayed behind. And, and I suppose for the teenagers who are so much more aware, they're, they're traumatised for their parents too because they're seeing mothers upset, they're seeing um, other siblings upset, younger children who are concerned. It's just, it's just an absolute nightmare situation for them in spite of the kindness that they're, they're encountering here and they all went to great pains to say that they had encountered huge kindness and they couldn't get over how much people were doing for them between um, schools, schools waving fees, uniform shops, giving uniforms to help them get to school, people turning up with um, both gifts and vouchers and, and trying to help them settle in and welcoming them, but it's still huge, it's still huge trauma yeah. with them. And you, you're, you're making the point, Jen, as well, that we need to be careful when we're having conversations with children around mm. all of this, because we are, are hearing that there's, you know, 700 children now in Irish schools, mm. that, you know, there will be Russian kids in these communities mm. too, and, and you know, th that there is no, there's no xenophobia that emerges, that, that you can have these conversations with kids that they, they understand, that there's nuance here Absolutely. too. Absolutely, we have to be so mindful of the language and I think sometimes when you're trying to simplify things and not traumatise your own children who have seen things on, on the news or have heard their parents having conversations and for, for younger children particularly you go to that simple good versus evil you know and good wins and, and if, we, if, we, if we simplify it down to, down to things like that you can very easily you know and completely unintentionally um, create a xenophobia and they're likely to be in school with Russian children, with Ukrainian children perhaps already but certainly with more Ukrainian children now and we have to be so careful around the language that we use. Uh, just in terms of how the government is managing all of that, like clearly we're hearing, you know, figures of 200,000 um, people uh, potentially coming into the country uh, in terms of, and we know obviously the, the big challenge is, isn't it, that you don't really know how many people and, and grappling with that is a, is a big deal for government right now. Yes. Um, do you think you've kind of got all the bodies together and that you're, you're, you're happy at the way it's being handled right now? I think we're, we're dealing with the information that we're getting to date and trying to scenario plan based on, based on what's happening now. I mean, there's, as of today, 11,195 people have come from Ukraine to Ireland. We expect that to be 20,000 by the end of the month. That's just next week. Indeed, 40,000 by the end of the following month. Those are huge increases to our population and they need housing, they need, they need places to be. And we don't have the capacity to have own door accommodation for all of those people. We're trying to come up with all of the solutions in terms of temporary accommodation in the first instance clearly about 20,000 people have registered their interest to try and provide accommodation whether it's own door accommodation or shared accommodation those need to be vetted those systems are coming into place you can see in the education sector in particular you know I, and I've seen it in schools in my own constituency not just the identification of spaces and the allocation of spaces and schools opening up and I see children as, as other people have it, moving into schools mm -hmm. but the provision of, of supports of, of therapeutic supports one of the schools in my area was telling me that the department had been on 
on to try and get them a space for art therapy for after school for Ukrainian children who clearly may have a language barrier and it's an initial way of, of, of accessing therapeutic supports very quickly through art in an after school sort of way. And so are, those supports, are those supports available? Because, you know, we heard from James there the scarring impact of this, the effects of war and, and the traumatising effect it'll have on kids and yes. what they will need when they arrive in countries well, like the, Ireland. The, the, the departments have identified all of these needs. The National Education Psychological Services is there. They are, they are expecting people to come with trauma-based mental illnesses. I mean, that is the ex expectation and we're trying to identify and provide for that. Schools are used to children coming without English as a first language, used to coming in the middle of the year and everyone is, is trying to put the supports around. But I mean, that's just an example. That was That's, that's two weeks ago that I had that conversation about art, art therapy. And I, to me, I was really encouraged by it because it's proactive reaching out and anticipating the need that's going to be there. It's going to be needed at scale. And I don't know what the answer to scale that scale is yet. Nobody does. But we're doing our best to try and identify the need and put in place the supports. It, it is the scale of it, isn't it, John? It, it's a huge challenge for government in doing this. I mean, there's all this about, you know, people opening their doors and being generous. Um, you know, I know they want families to take um, refugees for, for uh, commit to up to a year. There's even the vetting around all of this. It's a huge challenge and even finding locations um, and they're going to be, they're not going to be, you know, own, own door, as, as Jennifer was saying. This is going to be really difficult. Well, let's not forget we didn't have own door housing for much of our own, for a large proportion of our own population uh, up until now. Um, there's been a process with this. At first there was pride, I think, when Michal Martin was on the BBC and the stark contrast between Ireland's attitude to Ukrainian refugees and Britain's. Um, we moved on to the airport on Saturday and you could see a tone in the press conferences that I was attending that I asked Leo Varadkar, for instance, could this be the spur for, for something dr dramatic to happen in the housing situation, for instance? And he said in his blunt and, and endearing way that, well, if there was something dramatic we could do with housing, we would have done it already. So, no, there isn't. I think the only solution that was put forward by Leo on Saturday short term and I'm sure that has moved on since and will move on was for large scale camp type accommodation uh, in Gormanstown and uh, mm. <coughs> Mill Street as well. So no, there isn't, um, there isn't the accommodation for a huge influx to, to the numbers of 200,000 um, refugees to Ireland and there aren't the facilities. Schools in large parts of Dublin are, are, are already to capacity. So, we have we have seen. Although the Norma Foley was saying, you know, there won't be a problem with school places, and they're no, you know, working uh, and with the uh, Department of Children to kind of fix up accommodation linked to schools nearby, but. No doubt. It's and I think we're not, we're not being critical of the government. We're just saying these are the facts. Yeah. These are numbers, and people yeah. will come in, and there will be, as 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 the other two guests have have already alluded to, there there will be social pressures if this is a war of attrition, as we've 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 predicted already, and this war goes on, um, people will start facing maybe. Uh, uh, friction in, in the societies that they, they go into because they are uh, going into existing societies. And lastly, if someone has come here as a refugee from Mariupol, for instance, they've no home to go back to. 
Yeah, so this is you've spent time in Ukraine, problem. Harry. You know, from a perspective, I suppose people leave; they don't want to leave their homes. They don't want to be in this situation at all. Yeah. Um, but they could be facing a long time in countries like Ireland yeah. because they have no home to go back to. Yeah, like many refugees from many places, it must be said. And and I think that uh, you know the, the the reception that Ukrainian refugees have got from Poland across Europe to Ireland is really wonderful. And the people I know who've been on the border and helping to receive them have said that and some of those same people have been there trying to help Syrian refugees and Afghan refugees and Yemeni refugees mm -hmm. and people from appalling war situations, Iraqi refugees, Syrian refugees and no such luck to get this kind of reception for, for the state and society, civil society, uh, the, the governments in the West to take these kind of actions to support them. And I, and I do think, you know, I think that Irish people would have it in their hearts to do it for Palestinians, to do it for Yemenis, to do it for Syrians too. And, uh, and I don't think that there's any particular reason that, except for the, some of the political reasons that we were talking mm. about, that the Ukrainians, and I think that's why it's so important that Ukrainian refugees are not deployed as political weapons in this war, especially children, obviously. A lot of these refugees are going to be Russian-speaking. Many of them may have political views that aren't the same as the Ukrainian government. And so I think it's, it's, it's vital that we don't assume a particular set right. of politics on the basis of their nationality. Okay. My thanks uh, to Jennifer com for coming in tonight. Harry, John and Jen are staying with me next. Our look at the other big news stories of the week. So stay with us. Welcome back, lecturer Harry Brown and journalists John Lee and Jen Hogan are still with me here to discuss the other big stories of the week. And I guess those COVID figures, they're creeping back up. Well, more than that, we've had over 23,000 cases, I think, uh, today, John. And the, the pressure on our emergency departments and on our healthcare system, that's where they're, they're really feeling the brunt of it right now because we're hearing about elective surgeries being cancelled. Yeah, I thought when we were here on the 20th of January, uh, flagging the lifting of restrictions. We might have seen the back of it, but we clearly haven't. Um, 1,400 people in hospital yesterday. And I note that Tony O'Holohan contacted Stephen Donnelly recommending a new committee be set up to replace Neffet. So uh, names on a postcard, please. Um, that they clearly believe, the Chief Medical Officer clearly believes there is some need for a group to advise the government again on what to do with COVID. We were discussing during the break that the the appetite isn't there for a return of restrictions, but the appetite was never there for them in the first place. But I, I did note that Denmark had some statistics the other day to show that up to over 50% of their population have now had COVID, and, at the, and only recently they lifted all their, their, their restrictions in totality, not feeling that they were required anymore. Um, Michal Martin has said in Brussels today, I think, that... Um, he feels that the, the, the chief medical officer has made no recommendation for restrictions and he doesn't envisage anything coming back in the near future. And that includes mask wearing. It's still a, yeah, a personal choice that, for you to do it, yeah, but he uh, hasn't recommended it, the Taoiseach, today. On that, we are hearing about these calls for a, a mask mandate to be reintroduced. Jen, your thoughts on that? You're hearing already of individual schools um, who are asking pupils 
to come back in wearing masks. Literally just before I came on air, I got a message from a parent screenshot of an email that was sent through with a request from, a sc from the school to return to masks. And I had I'd received a previous one from another, another parent a couple of weeks back. Now, the tone of this one was a bit different to the tone of the other one, which was more of a recommendation. And obviously, that, you know, the idea of schools doing a solar run here isn't really something that would be kind of welcomed as a whole by parents and certainly wasn't welcomed by the parents. Do you think the return touch. of masks generally would be, would be welcomed? By, no, but I think by anybody no in a school appetite. setting. No, I don't think there's any appetite for it. I mean, obviously, if people want to wear masks, that's still supported within schools uh, for teachers and students too. But I think if, if you're to look around the schools, you're not seeing the children wearing masks are, or the teenagers are, largely wearing them. Our attitude has changed hugely here, yeah. though, hasn't it, when it comes to all the restrictions and everything? I mean, um, like I've, I know from other places, when you, you know, there's still plenty of mask wearing happening, but like right here now, you rarely see people in indoor settings wearing masks. It's becoming really, really unusual. It was we were very sudden. We, we, stu we stuck it to really, all the rules, yeah. and when the rules were lifted, yeah, They're gone. that happened too. And I think that uh, you know the WHO just said recently that Ireland and a number of other countries kind of did it a little bit brutally. I think that was the word used. That we had a, a pretty stringent set of restrictions, and then we cast them off too far. Now it's very easy to say that in retrospect, but these figures certainly point in that direction. I mean, I myself got COVID a couple of weeks ago, the week that my students' masks came off, and a few of my colleagues were in a similar situation, and so I maybe wouldn't have minded too much. On the other hand, I you know I have young people in my family, and they want their masks off, certainly for the long day in school. But I'd certainly support, for instance, the bus drivers whose unions are looking to ensure that people on public transport have masks on. I think people in shopping uh, should be wearing masks. I don't think that there's, you know, God knows what level of restriction we may need or have to go back to. But it's clear, my colleagues are right, there's not an appetite for yeah. it. But at the same time, there's a need for something. Um Let's talk about you know, political moves uh, today. And we know uh, Ivana Bacic being announced now as Labour leader. There was no competition there for that role. Um, John, what's she going to have to do to make sure that you know, those opposition benches are pretty crammed, uh, that, that later, Labour really sets itself apart and reinvents itself, essentially? Um, I wrote a piece last weekend saying that there might be some um, political genius at play here, but I can't quite see it. It does bang of um, political panic, really, um, the appointment of Ivana Bacic. Um, because Alan Kelly was appointed not so long ago, and it was a bit of a volt fast, for, for a bit of a change for uh, Labour in that they went for a rural, old-fashioned, back-slapping, um, Tammany Hall-type politician, dare I say it, uh, for the first time, really, in their, in their history. They hadn't a tradition of that. He, he was a man that would, would, would have needed to get around the country and meet people, wasn't given that opportunity. At the moment, he was allowed to do it. The country was opened up to him, essentially, that he could bring those skills to play. They got rid of him. And they're now a complete volfast and have moved to a, a, a South Dublin liberal who I fail to see um, who, outside of that small little enclave, she will be attractive too. And I mean, you don't think I, she's I mean going to, to widen sense. the appeal of the party? I can't see it. I, I think she's really gone to uh, narrow the appeal of the party. The appointment of a person with, with those political views that she does, and it's, uh, it's no, no reflection on the person uh, themselves, that she, she would bring Labour to a field, I, I think, uh, I could well be proven wrong, where they're competing with the Social Democrats in an already crowded field. But they of, would be competing of, uh, ideologically with the Social Democrats but, anyway. I mean, they, they are, uh, they're both... 
But very, is that is similar. that is that wise that 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 that, that position is already occupied? Yeah. Uh, it, there certainly isn't an effort there that that I saw the Alan Kelly appointment as an effort, the long, boring, unglamorous slog back to some form of representation of the left and of the working man in, in Ireland. This move certainly doesn't indicate that. And maybe it's, it's rather than panic, an indication that Labour has decided it wants to be a six-seat six party forever All right. and hang on to those seats. I'm sure they, they would strongly disagree with that. Labour's not here to, to, to fight that one. But, um, you know, to move on to, to other matters and climate being another big issue today, um, Harry, uh, well, this week, in fact, and um, of our times, uh, the UN chief speaking out and saying that we are sleepwalking to a climate catastrophe. Um, there's an awful lot going on in Ukraine. There's an awful lot going on around the world. But uh, climate, again, just, you know, Taking the back, going back of, into the background again. I was kind of darkly joking with one of my children the other day that given the war and given the pandemic, that we'll be lucky if we make it long enough to when climate change gets us. You know, that, that, that civilization is looking on a pretty uh, shoogly peg, as they say in Scotland. But I think that there's a... Um, you know, that, you know, clearly young people are engaged with this. I think that's part of the Ivana Bacic uh, call as well. You know, her the posters in the, uh, when she was running in the by-election, she looked like a children's <coughs> book character with her bicycle and her scarf and the word labor. You needed a magnifying glass to find that that was her party. So clearly, like a kind of a climate friendliness, my, my own... 17-year-old uh, to be going out on strike tomorrow from her school uh, on behalf of climate. So people are still concerned, yeah. they're still engaged. Uh, the war clearly demonstrates to us how important it is that we change our approach to yeah. fossil fuels. And it's interesting because it certainly is the younger generation that are um, coming up trumps on that one. Uh, just to the royals, we did have a royal visit today. Um, whether people were interested in it or not is another thing. What do you think, Jen? Prince of Wales and his wife, Camilla, Duchess of uh, uh, Cornwall, were over here. They began a public tour of Ireland. I'm laughing because I didn't actually realise until earlier on that there, that, that was happening. Today. I don't know that there is the interest in the royals that used to be there beyond perhaps um, admiring Kate or seeing what Camilla's wearing or something Although like that. Although they have their own um, problems over in Jamaica yes, that's been yeah. a d pretty disastrous tour, hasn't it? It hasn't, it hasn't gone well for them at all. But I don't know that, we, I mean, I think we did used to have that fascination with the royals before. We did used to look on, but I think over time it has, you know, it has definitely dissipated completely. Com Okay. I don't think you won't be lining out to meet I them anyway. Be, no. Okay, thanks for that, Jen. And all our panel, our program is available to Harry and John. Our program's available as a podcast. You can catch it on all major platforms. From all the late team here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. 